How did you decide what the birth of your child would look like? As someone born in the 80s, I was born in a hospital with a doctor, which is very normal for the time. But I had the unusual experience of having much younger siblings who were born at home with a midwife. And so I didn't really know that you did something else other than have a midwife when you were going to have a baby. And I, I didn't realize until my first midwifery appointment that the fact that my mom had had midwifery care in the 90s was actually surprising and, and really cool. And so it, for me, it wasn't really a question if I wanted a midwife. The question was which clinic I wanted to end up with. And we ended up picking the midwifery clinic that was the closest to our house. And it was the most positive healthcare experience I have had in my whole life. I think for me, I'm a pretty cautious person. And um, it had taken me two years to get pregnant. And I think for me, because just generally kind of the person that I am and the personality that I have, that I felt safer going to a hospital. So I, um, I didn't really consider alternatives. I didn't really consider having a midwife or anything like that because my comfort level was really being in the hospital. And I think for me, I would still, still have the babies in the hospital. And I think for each one of them, I felt like I was really well taken care of and that the baby was really well taken care of. And I'm glad that I made the decision that I made. Yeah, so I saw a family doctor at Mount Sinai. They have a, a family medicine team there. And they offered prenatal classes to all of like the family medicine patients. So I uh, attended that and it was facilitated by a midwife and a family medicine resident. And so they offered information on like pain management during labor. And yeah, it was really a great program. And that's sort of where I um, I established my birth plan, excuse me, so to speak. And I also found using online resources really helpful. So there was like a website I frequented a lot when I was pregnant called babycenter.ca. And you just create an account and you post anonymously if you have any questions about labor, or like anything that happens, you know, post-labor with your baby. And I found it was really nice to get like unbiased opinions from ultimately like total strangers at times. Uh, and it, it can be sometimes more helpful, I think, than asking like friends and family because it's so unbiased. So that helped a lot with establishing a birth plan for me as well, just going online and seeing what other people had to say. Well, for the first baby, of course, there was lots of planning and discussion. I, I, uh, I also went to antenatal classes, which was a women's only group. And then the couples group, it was very serious and intense. And everyone was very keen. They wanted to plan their births. And so we spent a lot of time discussing what was the ideal birth. And in those days, this is back in the early 90s, there was pressure to have a natural birth, whatever that meant, to avoid drugs if you could, and to breastfeed and all of these things. And so I guess... I had an idea in my mind, which is that I would like to minimize drugs if I could. So those were the hopes that I had. It would be going into hospital, didn't have a problem with that for the first. For the, other, for the second baby, I was okay about going into hospital, having had a, you know, a fairly positive experience the first time, but everything I planned 
sort of didn't quite go according to plan? I think that both our prenatal classes and our midwives really stress the idea that you can have a birth plan, but it's really best to think of it as a birth idea as opposed to exactly what's going to happen because babies arrive however they arrive and it's not necessarily anything like what you imagined. And so, I mean, we, we'd planned a home birth. I wanted our little one to be born at home and in an environment, I guess, I guess that I felt that I could kind of control and plan for and prepare. I didn't like the idea of being in a hospital, but with our team of midwives, I felt really safe. And I felt like I was still in control. I feel like I am super, was, and am super lucky because going into pregnancy, I already knew so much about it. As a midwife, I love attending home births. And for a low-risk woman without complications, I I think they're a great option. I think that women should have their babies wherever they're going to be the most comfortable, um, where there's going to be the least amount of stress, um, and that will help the labor progress. There's less stress hormones, and there's more oxytocin, which is the hormone that causes contractions and labor. So if a woman has a home that is going to freak her out, then she should be in the hospital if that's where she's going to feel like the right, you know, if that's where she's going to feel calm and like that's the right place for her. For me, that was, that was at home. But once we were home, we had really regular, um, both phone check-ins with our midwifery team and also in-person visits. And so for the first couple of weeks, we didn't have to go out to go to appointments. One of the midwives from our team would come to our house and weigh our baby and check how I was healing and talk us through anything that we were having questions about, be it nursing or weight gain or anything that came up. And so it was really, really supportive. Welcome to episode 79 of Raw Talk. You just heard from several mothers discussing how they made decisions about their birth. In fact, you might recognize them from our last episode, number 78, which was part one of a two-part series on maternal health. In our last episode, we explored the topic of fertility and the science behind getting pregnant. I'm Melissa, and in today's episode, we're exploring pregnancy, birth, and the first few days postpartum. You'll hear about the role of midwives and physicians, about situations involving high-risk pregnancies, as well as a global health perspective on maternal health. We explore disparities in maternal health both within and beyond Canadian borders, as well as some solutions to address these disparities. Before we dive in, we wanted to share that we recently wrapped up our COVID Decoded series on YouTube, where we hosted experts to discuss how the pandemic has impacted various facets of Canadian life. If you missed the streams, you can still go back and watch the discussion on our YouTube channel linked here in the episode description. Finally, Raw Talk is proudly supported by the University of Toronto Affinity Partners, including MBNA and TD Insurance. U of T alumni get preferred financial rates and rewards, including a customized credit card and competitive insurance packages, all while supporting alumni and student initiatives at U of T. Visit affinity.utoronto.ca or click the link in our show notes to get access to exclusive deals. Okay. Let's dive in.
As you heard, the moms we interviewed had a range of experiences with their pregnancies, some of which involved deciding where to have their birth and with whom. One mom who you heard from was Madeline Springate Coombs, a newly certified midwife who walked us through the role of midwives during pregnancy and helped us debunk some misconceptions about midwifery. A lot of people don't know don't know what a midwife is. They are a primary healthcare provider, specifically for women and babies. So women um, for the length of their pregnancy, for the labor, the delivery, and then they continue to be primary care provider for the mom and the baby for the first six weeks of the baby's life. In Ontario, a woman can elect to have either a midwife as their primary care provider or a physician, such as an obstetrician, gynecologist, or family doctor, followed by a pediatrician to look after the baby post-birth. Under OHIP, either are covered, but not both. Okay, so other, uh, I guess, differences between midwifery and um, a doctor. A midwife is an expert in in normal pregnancy, uh, normal situations, Um, healthy pregnancy, normal deliveries. Uh, When things go outside of that, the midwife consults with a physician or, you know, appropriate other caregiver. Basic example, a midwife doesn't do a C-section. So, and I think some of your questions get to this later, but if a woman needs a C-section, that is a temporary transfer of care to an obstetrician who performs the surgery. Um, but then uh, care of the baby and care of the mom would be transferred back to the midwife uh, when it would, when it is appropriate. Uh, other differences with midwifery and the medical model is like more kind of philosophical, but that also leads to differences in what it looks like. Madeline alluded to several specific philosophies that midwives have. We asked her what those philosophies were and how they guide midwives' practices. So midwifery in Ontario is based on three main philosophies. So one of those is choice of birthplace. Um, So midwives offer women choice of birthplace. So you can have your baby in the hospital, you can have your baby at home, or if there is one, you can have your baby in a birth center. So the second philosophy is informed choice. The medical equivalent would be informed consent, which is great. But how I think about it is informed consent is saying, this is the procedure that we're going to do. Do you agree to it? Whereas informed choice is saying, these are your options. Let's talk about it. What do you want to do? It's a bit more open-ended. And I get what that, how that changes the practice of midwifery is that our appointments are a lot longer. A general uh, visit with a midwife is 30 minutes to 45 minutes, which would be, which is considerably longer than you would generally get with uh, an obstetrician or a family doctor. And that gives us the time to talk about what your options are in pregnancy, to talk about the different tests that are available, and really let women make their, their choice. And we really re- respect that it's the family's decisions when it comes to the, all the you know, interventions that are offered in pregnancy. That said, we do offer all the same testing. Third philosophy is continuity of care. So uh, generally when a woman comes into care with a midwifery practice, uh, they're kind of teamed with a small team of midwives. And those midwives uh, get to know the women, so the women will only see those that small team. And it is extremely likely that one of those midwives that the woman knows will be at her birth. Not only at her birth, but at her whole like active labor, birth, and immediate postpartum. So essentially what that looks like in the labor and delivery room is that the midwife is doing the role of the nurse and the doctor. Uh, and then in the postpartum, it's awesome that kind of women have a person that they have had a relationship with and that they know and trust um, that actually does home visits in the first few weeks postpartum. 
Madeline talked us through what care from a midwife might look like. We wondered what other types of healthcare professionals a midwife might collaborate with and under what types of situations that might occur. So we'll collaborate with a variety of specialties, whoever is the most appropriate. So like I mentioned, maybe we'll be working with a uh, or consulting with your family physician if there's like a pre-existing condition. The care provider we're consulting with the most often is obstetricians, um, but then also pediatricians because um, we're also ca- taking care of the baby for the first six weeks of their life. So if there's a complication, um, then we'd be consulting with the pediatrician. While expectant moms can elect to have a midwife care for them and their baby instead of a physician, Madeline mentioned that in cases of high-risk pregnancies, a midwife would transfer care to an OBGYN. We spoke to Dr. John Kingdom, a physician at Mount Sinai Hospital here in Toronto, specializing in placental complications and high-risk pregnancies. We first asked him about the work done at the Ontario Fetal Centre and high-risk pregnancy clinic. There's two parts to high-risk pregnancy care. One is maternal complications of pregnancy. The other one is all the range of fetal diagnoses. So we cover all the fetal anomalies and all the sort of common perinatal problems like ruptured membranes, bleeding, placenta previa, twins, short cervix, all that sort of stuff. Then we do all the fetal anomaly diagnosis and management. And then we have two separate themes. One is preterm birth prevention. The other one is placental complications, which are your medical ones and surgical ones. And uh, fetal, it includes fetal therapy. So, you know, interventions before birth uh, to try and improve the outcomes for, say, twins with twin, twin to twin transfusion syndrome or certain kinds of fetal abnormalities, including surgery for fetal spina bifida. Now, that program had to be stopped during COVID. But... All the other programs are running, running quite normally. You do have to be referred, and you want to have a, you know, refer, and there needs to be a reasonable reason to come. So we have a filtering system, we have a triage system. We could get 50, 60 referrals a day, so you know, we can't see 50, 60 people per day. Uh, so we have to pick, pick who we're going to see. And uh, so some people get disappointed, or we can give advice, we can you know, write advice out back to the referring midwife or doctor. I mean, a lot of the elements of good care require collaboration with surgeons and oncologists and other people. So, you know, a lot of it's very interdisciplinary care. As Dr. Kingdom alluded to earlier, complications arising during pregnancy don't just originate from the maternal side, but also the fetal side. No, so we, we, I mean, we have specialty clinics at Sinai uh, with the key people who are at sick kids. So, you know, we would work with sick kids in the really the three areas, those three areas in particular to get the accurate diagnosis, look for associated abnormalities, and then talk about prognosis, then decide do you want to continue pregnancy, plan delivery, and go to sick kids, or do you want a termination of pregnancy? And that's the general you know, pathway of how we manage patients with fetal abnormalities, you know, major fetal abnormalities. And of course, every pregnancy is screened for major fetal abnormalities with the uh, 19 to 20 week anatomy ultrasound. And they're screened for common chromosome abnormalities using first semester screening and um, NIPT. Given the large range of cases seen at the clinic, we asked Dr. Kingdom to describe the approach he uses to deal with some common conditions. Dr. Kingdom also spoke about their approach in cases where mothers face mental health problems and the potential side effect of any medications. So uh, in terms of the common conditions, I mean, accurate screening and diagnosis and management of preeclampsia, which is new onset hypertension in pregnancy, and fetal growth restriction due to placental disease, we have better and better tools to do those things well, and they're everyday common problems. The diagnosis and management of fetal abnormalities is a, a um, pretty efficient process now. Fetal therapy for a number of conditions is well established, like, for example, 
prevention and treatment of rhesus disease is well established. The accurate diagnosis and delivery and management of congenital heart disease is fairly well established. Um, so we're getting better at screening and diagnosis of that. We also have a program in pregnancy for people who become pregnant with a prior ongoing significant mental health diagnosis, particularly in the major mood disorders. Right? Of course, they could have a concurrent disorder. They could have an addiction associated with a major mood disorder. I mean, you can get neonatal withdrawal from SSRIs and SNRIs, and it's sort of staged one to three. Um, so stage one withdrawal is subtle, but would be recognized by you know, a trained uh, physician and or nurse. Um, and the parents wouldn't necessarily be aware. You know, so I mean, full-blown withdrawal and seizures are, are really uncommon. So most people are recommended to remain on their uh, mood stabilizer drugs during pregnancy because the benefits of stability greatly outweigh any risks. We were curious to hear about complicated cases, those where much is still unknown. How do they approach such cases? Okay, so in rare complex cases, you, um, registries is one way forward, and it can be done internationally. So the UK, for example, has a registry for rare diseases, and they basically pick 10 a year, and they just sort of audit them for a year in a population of 50 million people. So, so, you know, for example, at our hospital, we will, you know, we've had 10 cases in 20 years of disease X, and we'll do a systematic review, meta-analysis, have the cases in, and, and present that, publish that. So that's that way forward. Observational studies are the, the norm in many areas of prenatal diagnosis and treatment. But we have had, you know, successful international randomized control trials for rare conditions like, say, surgery for fetal spina bifida. The nastiest problem with the least understanding is for sure spontaneous preterm labor, ruptured membranes and delivery. I mean, 70% of all singleton births ending up in NICU are the results of spontaneous preterm labor and or, and or ruptured membranes with no other known patho- no underlying pathogenic explanations. So, you know, we're in our, in our infancy for some of those things, okay? Yeah, and they're very common, yeah. So what are the main factors determining a woman's risk level when becoming pregnant? Your previous reproductive history, performance, your previous medical and surgical history, your family history, uh, all of these things are relevant, but, I mean, we're not going to see them when they're not pregnant unless they're referred. So it's very much a primary care issue. Many women, I suppose, are more and more aware of potential risk by being pregnant. But it's amazing how many will, you know, get pregnant in quite treacherous circumstances without any previous pregnancy consultation. The best example of that is IVF in women who are very overweight, right? So um, there's a big push to try and get women to have uh, IVF clinics to not do this. And so people have pre-pregnancy consultations to go over the implications of being pregnant when in a high BMI BMI category, certainly BMI over 40. Uh, But there are many women attending our hospital with BMI over 50. In fact, 50 is a cutoff because we have so many high high BMI patients that we don't see anybody for that reason unless their BMI is above 50. But I mean, people people are getting pregnant from private IVF clinics with carrying a lot of significant comorbidities without necessarily having had a pre-pregnancy consult. So what we do at Sinai is we have a direct link between the Sinai fertility and then maternal fetal medicine, both pre-pregnancy for consultation. And then when they are pregnant, they seamlessly move from the REI division to, to one of our MFM members who specializes in pregnancy care for uh, infertile patients. Because they're much more likely to have potential complications, for example, as well. 
As you might have gathered from the discussion so far on the type and magnitude of cases seen at Mount Sinai, it really is one of the top centers for maternal and fetal medicine here in North America. Dr. Kingdom explains that the complexity of care delivered, number of rare cases seen, and caliber of research conducted at Mount Sinai have made it a world leader in pregnancy care. In fact, Despite their already full caseload, Dr. Kingdom mentions that the center often receives referrals from patients from other countries who sometimes seek refugee status to obtain specialized care here. It's by far the biggest program of its kind anywhere in Canada because there are 20 members of the MFM division, including three geneticists. So of the 7,500 deliveries a year here, 3,000 will be clearly high risk. So we're the biggest volume hospital and the biggest volume high-risk pregnancy program by far. We would be in the top five in the world in terms of volume and specialization. Because we do, there's nothing nothing we don't do, right? We do all the fetal therapy. We do all the patients with cancer, organ transplantation, complex obstetric surgery. So in other hospitals in the GTA area would have MFM physicians either working on their own or in smaller groups. So Sinai will always be the it will always be the number one in Canada because of the population of the GTA and it's in it's in central Canada, opposite a big sick kids hospital. So we get federal referrals. It's a federal MFM referral unit basically. So people will come from all over Canada, particularly English speaking Canada, for treatment. You know we have ten maternal fetal medicine fellows, and at any one time we've got we're training a mix of Canadians plus people from all over the world. Another important and often challenging time is the postpartum period. Dr. Kingdom spoke to us about the support provided to women at this critical time and the work being done to address challenges here through the summit program. So we actually have a a division of perinatal psychiatry, but I mean, access to perinatal psychiatry isn't swift and easy. So in the COVID era, uh, it coincided with Sinai becoming the major site of a U.S. study called Summit, which is around scaling up online mental health support for women. And that's proving to be remarkably successful because, of course, people are, it's the only default pathway to support people in a COVID era. I mean, one in four, one in five patients in high-risk pregnancy management will either have or need uh, mental health co-care. The clinic has implemented telemedicine to address the problem of accessibility to maternal pregnancy care in a broader sense, not just postpartum services. Yeah, well, we're trying really hard to do that, uh, we're, you know, uh, to, to provide better outreach. Um, it isn't worth our while to travel. There's no, there's no point in me getting in a car and driving two hours north to Aurelia and back, you know. So we do a bit of telemedicine, but what we do is we triage really very well and we try and do definitive consultations in one go and then we do shared care and we keep people for delivery that we need to and we try hard to uh, devolve care back again as much as we can because those are important points. I mean, some of the hardest groups to do with are, you know, young First Nations women on reserves five hours north of here, you know, that, that, that it's a, they're a tough group. I mean, they actually, it doesn't, they, they have, paradoxically, they have no financial cost because everything is fully covered by their band. So the uninsured, non non-native status people in very northern Ontario, they're the ones that struggle because they'll get a northern travel grant, but it will cover only a small fraction of the cost of coming. But people do come six, eight hours. There are ways of getting around coming to some extent. Often there's no substitute for imaging the patient yourself and talking to them eye to eye and having a good counseling session. You know, so do do as much interdisciplinary care on the same day as, as you possibly can. 
Given the need to make the most out of each visit, we asked Dr. Kingdom what the clinic's strategy is to address this and the use of telemedicine to do so. Is there a battery of tests that you go through usually just to make sure that some standard things are covered? Uh, well, often those things are all initiated. Most of the standard early testing is initiated by the primary health care provider, which we can then see online. So we that's the reason we formed what's known as the Ontario Fetal Centre at Sinai. We've received some government funding for that. So we have nurses that coordinate all those things. So if somebody's going to come from five hours north, we'll review the triage and we know what the likely diagnosis is. We might set up appointments B and C. So A is with us and then B and C to follow uh, to try and get as much done for them to decide, do I want termination of pregnancy? Yes or no. What's Do I see the right people to get the prognosis so that if I'm making a decision to carry on, it's as well informed as possible. It's way better to see people if at all possible because uh, imaging is so important in fetal medicine and the maternal medicine patients are going to be our patients anyway. So telemedicine really works best for people who are more remote uh, for an opinion. So there's a segment of people where it works well, but it doesn't work uniformly well, I'll be honest. Uh, so the, um, the key point is constantly triaging and recalibrating that. So we're, we're looking at the thin end of the ice cream cone. So there's only so much work we can do. So we try and concentrate on that on the patients with the greatest probability of benefit. After hearing about how complicated the cases seen at the clinic are, we couldn't help but ask how collaborative the patients are when it comes to risk assessment and pregnancy management. So we asked Dr. Kingdom about his approach to patient counseling and his experience regarding the response. I'm somewhere in the middle. I mean, I think patients want doctors to give them an honest opinion. I mean, there are, there are circumstances where pregnancies a very treacherous to occur for example cyanotic congenital heart disease is one or you know complex cancer that's really only um that's metastatic so there are situations you know cir- you know cirrhotic liver disease serious chronic lung disease when there are situations where you look somebody in the eye and say yeah you could get pregnant with a very you know limited chance of success you could you've got a one in three chance of dying right but the kind of person that has a one in three chance of dying may see being pregnant as life-affirming for them, and they really are prepared to take that risk. What they just need they need is very compassionate but honest counselling. Um, you also see people who are, you know, desperately trying to be pregnant in the late 40s, early 50s through donor egg IVF. But people are pregnant much older in much more complicated situations than ever before, in ever-increasing incre- ever numbers. And they are the things that, that that's, that's where the wall of, problems are. So all the stillbirths and hypertension and growth restriction all comes from that triad of diabetes, hypertension, advanced maternal age, IVF. That sort of mixture creates, you know, and metabolic syndrome creates all that general higher risk, which is why, for example, today, despite modern technology, we still have a one in 200 to one in 300 stillbirth rate in the third trimester, despite the fact that the average pregnant woman has three or four ultrasounds you know so why is that well the answer is that we still need to improve on our diagnostic or on our screening precision for those conditions and uh, we need to be more more and more aggressive about late preterm delivery to prevent stillbirth i mean you know pregnant for the first time to a baby over 40 is definitely a red flag no question but people don't want to believe they're getting older so there's a difference between fitness and reproductive aging, but re- people, reproductive aging is a real phenomenon that people just don't want to, they don't want to buy into it, you know? Dr. Kingdom emphasizes that he understands it's hard to reconcile the potential risks of getting pregnant at older ages with the opportunity to have a baby. 
There are so many reasons for why someone might put off pregnancy, including waiting for the right partner, pursuing education, lack of economic stability, or potentially vulnerable housing situations. It's obviously a sensitive topic and one that requires much open and judgment-free discussion. As he alluded to just now, even when someone is physically very healthy at an older age, they still have significantly higher risk for complications, something that can be very difficult to accept. So in all your, I know you've done this for a really long time, um, are there any specific stories that, do you have this cases in your mind that are just stuck there and, I don't know, either a good one or a bad one? Uh, so I had a recent, I had a recently had a uh, Turkish refugee who'd had two pregnancies with abruptions where she was put under general anesthetic and had cesareans and woke up and both babies are dead. And so, you, you know, it's hard to work out exactly what's going on. But I mean, that's pretty devastating to have two pregnancies, two dead babies and two cesareans. And so they came to Canada. He's an engineer and um, I took him on as patients. And she had a little low PLGF. I gave her heparin as well as aspirin. We watched her carefully. I put her into the hotel component of the hospital because she lived a long way away. And we dug the baby out by cesarean at 36 weeks. And I've got a very nice photo of mum, dad, and the baby. And that was amazing. And they gave me a Turkish coffee pot and two bags of Turkish coffee as a little present. And I, but I treasure the card that they wrote me. So you can win sometimes against the odds, you know, and that's what makes the job worthwhile, you know. Dr. Kingdom alluded to maternal health care outside of Canada when he spoke about his last patient and potentially some of the disparities that exist across the world. We wanted to explore some of the reasons why this might be, as well as what's being done to address such disparities. My name is Loren. I'm a midwife, primarily based in Ontario, but I also work outside of Ontario in a variety of contexts. Loren has been a midwife since 2012. The context she's referring to outside of Ontario refer to her work in both rural communities in Canada's north, as well as her work with Médecins Sans Frontières, or MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, an organization many of you might be familiar with. It's an international medical organization, not-for-profit, that specializes in emergency medical care globally. And they are working on the principles of impartiality, neutrality, bearing witness to what they see, as well as like medical ethics and transparency. Loren knew about MSF from several of her acquaintances who had worked with the organization before. Since she had some background in tropical medicine and a desire to work with NGOs, she applied and was accepted to work with the organization as a midwife in 2015. Since then, she's been on five different missions in Ethiopia, Kenya, Yemen, Sierra Leone, and just recently returned from her second mission in Yemen, where she was providing rural maternal newborn care in a conflict zone. I think when people think of doctors without borders, they usually think of the doctors being the ones in the field or mm-hmm. like, or sometimes even nurses. I think nurses were involved in um, the original MSF when it was created. But midwives, um, like when I heard that you were a midwife and were working with MSF, I, I didn't even realize that that was something that um, mm-hmm. you could do. Or uh, Yeah, I just think our understanding globally of the role of midwives is not very clear in the Canadian context. So like in Canada, midwives, I think most people already know this, are doing about like 15% of obstetrical care deliveries. But globally, midwives are like 90% of the workforce when it comes to obstetrical care. So like it's, it's part of like the UN mandate to increase 
upscale birth attendants globally. And that's mainly out of midwives because nurses and midwives, this being the year of the nurse and the midwives, 2020, um, are I didn't know that. That's cool. The back. Yeah. So this is 2020 is the year of the nurse and the midwife. I love really that. Cool. That's great. It's a very special year. Yeah. Especially with COVID and everything that's happening and how nurses are so fundamental to what's like the progress. Yeah. It's amazing. So midwives globally are the first line workers for all obstetrical care. It's quite odd in our context for low risk women to be seeing high risk practitioners. So like globally, women are being seen by midwives first line. And so that being said, as an NGO, midwives going into these contexts to work with midwives makes more sense than a physician going in there to do that. Loren also mentions that while half the staff are field workers, the other half of hired staff work in logistics, administration, and operations, which provides the backbone of care delivery. She also mentions that MSF aims to hire local. So this specific NGO hires 90% local workers and 10% are international coming in because it just, it just makes sense. And I could go into that for hours about why that makes sense. But yes, like at its core, the objective is for it to be a community-based healthcare system. So like when we go in there, we are very, very focused on acceptance because without acceptance from the community, our work is very ineffective. So anthropologists, health promoters, field coordinators will be going to the local religious leaders, the local community heads, the even like the females that are kind of like the, the main caregivers before there was like a functioning structural system, right? So a big part of that is going there and meeting with them and getting their blessing essentially and saying like, are we providing what you need and how can we do that? So that's like the ultimate goal. It's, it's very imperfect for sure, but that's essentially what MS is trying to do. So coming in there and building a strong community group of like hired individuals, but also like collaborative individuals is like the goal. Loren emphasized that while MSF isn't perfect, they really do aim to foster community ties and acceptance in the locations they serve. The program can't work unless that trust is there. For context, she describes the situation in her most recent mission to Yemen and how it differed from her previous mission there. It was really difficult because we felt like the patients at one point were not coming to the hospital because of fear of getting COVID themselves at our facility or because of misinformation that was being passed to them about how COVID patients are being treated. And so we were finding that, that during especially the first, I think April, in the month of April at the hospital I was working at, which does about 800 to 1,000 deliveries a month for the facility that we were we had, which was very modest, we were probably having one of the lowest mortality rates I've ever seen in any of my contacts. Like we were providing really high quality care for what our context was. But then come COVID and because patients weren't coming early enough, they were seeking care so late, or they were going to private clinics that didn't have the facilities that they needed, they would come to us very late and we had some very poor outcomes and the highest mortality rate that we had seen for years. Like my midwives that I was working with 
were just like shaking their head, not understanding why we were having so many women come and die because of this like perceived fear of the hospital that wasn't there before. And they had been working over the last five years so hard to gain acceptance within the community and for something like this pandemic to really break all of that and just like have it all crumble down. So we thought, I think the hospital just before I left had really recovered in their like ability to help the population understand and we were doing better health promotion. But like those three months, just a lot of harm to the population even in that short time because of the the perceived fear and inability to really promote what we're doing effectively. It's clear that the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the experience of pregnancy and birth both here in Canada and around the world, but that women in different countries are clearly affected in different ways. We asked Loren to speak to maternal health care similarities and differences globally. How are outcomes different across the world? So globally, I kind of think like all women fundamentally are seeking the same things. They're seeking safety, dignity. They are seeking a cultural appropriateness, traditional appropriateness. And at the most basic level, they're seeking not to be harmed in their health, whatever that means. Like obviously in the context I've worked in, that means like not dying or not having a severe uh, morbidity coming out of pregnancy-related complications, which seems like very foreign to us living in Canada. So like just for numbers sake, just to kind of bring people's awareness, like in in the last couple of years, it's about like 800 women a day globally are dying from preventable pregnancy-related complications. So not just complications, but like preventable. And like, as a juxtaposition in Canada, we on average would have about eight out of 100,000 women a year dying from those types of complications. Whereas when I worked in Sierra Leone, which has the highest maternal mortality rate, it's about 1,300 per 100,000. So out of all of the 800 a day deaths that are preventable, 95 Four, 95% of those are happening in low or low to middle income countries. So when we're talking about global health, it's very basic. We kind of think of it in three main barriers. So one of the biggest barriers to women receiving good health care, life-saving health care, quality health care, is not even knowing about the service existing. And this can be because they're migrant, they're displaced. They don't have access to consistent electricity to be able to receive like a WhatsApp message, or there's no good health promotion from the government or from an NGO in their region for them to be aware of what they can access. So like, that's the basic is like the knowledge of the service isn't even there. And then the second barrier is the ability to get to the service. So once she knows about the service, what is her ability to get to the service? What are those barriers? So that could be, lack of finances, a cultural inability to move. Like when I was in Yemen, women cannot move without a male caretaker or in the middle of the night, there's not taxis running close to where she is. So she has to wait till the morning. We had a few of those where they came in very late to care, not because she didn't want to seek that care, but because she didn't have access to transportation until the morning, these types of things. 
And then the fourth is the quality service itself. So maybe she knows about the service, maybe she can get to the service, but then the actual facility is a rural health post that doesn't have a nurse. It only has a nurse assistant or doesn't have laboratory services or doesn't have a blood bank or she can't access antenatal care because there's not a midwife there. Like the services themselves are not quality. So we kind of in developmental aid and things like this are kind of focusing on how do we get those three things to line up? And then even when we get all those things to line up, which in itself feels like a big job, then how do we make that healthcare, like a healthcare that's sensitive to the patient specific story and journey? Um, and how do we provide a healthcare system that takes into consideration the traditional medicine that she might value and think is part of that normal pregnancy? Like, how do we put those together? So that's like another level that I think we struggle with on a day-to-day basis within healthcare globally, especially when international people are coming into those contexts. So those on like a very basic level are the barriers, let alone all the other things that we deal with in Canada that we do know are real barriers, but then just kind of get those basic ones out of the way is the struggle in itself in some of these contexts. Loren discussed some of the barriers to care for expectant moms in developing countries. MSF tries to address each of these barriers by hiring local, supporting transportation costs for patients, and engaging in health promotion through radio, WhatsApp, and Facebook. So in addition to all of the amazing work that you've done with MSF, you also um, work here in Canada as a midwife, and you mentioned that you provide some relief care in in rural areas of Canada, such as Nunavut. We often think of disparities in maternal health as, like, as you mentioned, many of the deaths related to maternal health happen in the developing world. But like in Canada, there are also disparities in care um, in rural and remote areas. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your work in Nunavut and s- some of the inequities in access to care and how that exists there? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're touching upon this because I think we really other countries that need help and we don't realize how how much our own system has to change. So my role in working in the North has been for mostly like coverage and relief because of a major problem of them not having enough staff to cover the health health clinics up there. Because ideally, I shouldn't be going there. Ideally, it should be local midwives, just in the same way that like globally, ideally, I shouldn't have to go to these other countries, right? Loren explains that there's a lack of providers for the Inuit communities living in Nunavut. In fact, there are only three Inuit midwives for the whole territory, with just a handful of non-Inuit midwives and the rest coming from southern Canada for relief work, like herself. The Inuit are negatively impacted by several social determinants of health, a big one being social support. They really value a community approach to their birth and to their care. So because we don't have Inuit midwives and we don't have a good structure for allowing birth within communities, a lot of women are flown outside of their community to have a have a delivery. Having said that, a lot of the midwives do go to Yellowknife. There's a hospital called Stanton Hospital in Yellowknife, which provides some of the most culturally appropriate and sensitive care that I've ever heard of and seen. And I'm very, very, very proud of what they do. But having said that, the ideal is for women to be able to choose to stay in their own communities 
for their pregnancy and their birth, or at least to have the option whether they want to stay or not. And I think of the biggest barriers to that is that we don't focus on training Inuit midwives or healthcare providers in general. A lot of the people I've worked with as a nurse are non-Inuit at the higher levels, at the physician level, at the nursing level, at the midwife level. And I think if we focus on that, that would really help with many of our disparities that we're seeing because it's just traditionally language and culturally more appropriate. And on top of that, because of our history in Canada, the it's only really been a generation between the residential schools and a lot of the horrible things that our nation has done to the Inuit people. And I was even able to see that while I was there. And it's, it's going to take us a very long time to come out of that. And there's a lot of work to be done there. And healthcare is very much at the center and the core of that because, yeah, the disparities in the North are very huge, very huge. And I just feel so privileged that I get to be working up there. But I also feel like there's just more we could be doing. And I think we can do it. I don't think it's unattainable. I think it's completely attainable. As Loren reminds us, we sometimes don't recognize that disparities exist in our own backyard. It's important to build capacity within a community and with the beneficiaries to make sure a resource or program can provide the maximum benefit. Our last guest is Jane Francis, a PhD student and registered dietitian in the Department of Nutritional Sciences here at U of T. Her research focuses on increasing access to breastfeeding support for new mothers from marginalized backgrounds, a program called PINSTEP, the Parkdale Infant Nutritional Security Targeted Evaluation Project. I'm currently doing my PhD in nutritional sciences here at U of T. And so the research program that I'm part of is called PINSTEP. And this is actually an academic and community partnership that we have with Parkdale Queen West Community Health Centre in Toronto in the Parkdale and Queen West neighbourhood. And what uh, this partnership is interested in exploring is whether we can integrate postnatal lactation support into a program we have in Canada called the Canada Prenatal Nutrition Program, or CPNP. And we're interested in this to increase access to postnatal lactation support for vulnerable women and hopefully help increase breastfeeding practices among vulnerable women. Nice. And so so the focus of this episode is on the experiences and decisions that expectant or new moms uh, might make, one of which <clears throat> is whether or not to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are like sort of the Canadian guidelines around this? What would you want to tell expectant moms? What do you think they should know? So the, actually the global public health recommendations for infant feeding uh, come from the World Health Organization or the WHO, and these infant feeding guidelines have been adopted by Health Canada, and it is recommended for women to breastfeed exclusively for the first six months of life. And so what that means is that for the first six months, babies only need to receive breast milk, so no other foods or liquids, not even water are needed. And in Canada, we do recommend infants to get a 400 international unit vitamin D uh, supplement for babies who are breastfed, uh, just because in Canada, we're in a northern latitude and it's actually recommended to protect infants' skin from the sun. So that vitamin D supplement is needed. Jane emphasized the benefits of breast milk for both the infant and mom. For infants, breast milk is the optimal source of nutrition, but also contains bioactive components 
like antibodies and human milk oligosaccharides, which help protect against infection and help with gastrointestinal development. For moms, breastfeeding has been shown to reduce their risk of breast and ovarian cancer, as well as diabetes. So there are a lot of reasons supporting breastfeeding. But what about moms who can't breastfeed because of lack of resources, knowledge, support, or financial barriers? As I mentioned, I think we do a good job of delivering the message that women should breastfeed and that there are benefits to it. But I think oftentimes the conversation kind of ends there Mm -hmm. and there's no further discussion on how lactation works or how the first few days postpartum like what those will actually look like in reality. You don't just deliver a baby and your milk starts flowing, right? There's challenges that will happen. And, um, and we need to talk about those challenges before women deliver so they know what to expect. And then they also know where to access support. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what's really interesting is that in Canada, most women start breastfeeding. So we have really high breastfeeding initiation rates, um, around 91%. So Mm. a lot of women start breastfeeding and many women want to breastfeed, but half of women stop breastfeeding before six months and only 30% in Canada are exclusively breastfeeding for six months. So we do a really good job of promoting breastfeeding so that women start but I think we kind of have to focus a bit more on the actual postnatal period when women are actually doing the breastfeeding and them and their baby are learning it. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting you asked about, you know, women's, like it's an individual, whether it's a woman's individual choice to breastfeed and whatnot. So one of my favorite quotes from the Lancet breastfeeding series uh, from 2016 is breastfeeding is generally thought to be an individual's decision and the sole responsibility of a woman to succeed, ignoring the role of society in its support and protection. So it's not just about the mom, it's about the whole family and it's about society and the way we look at um, infant feeding and the way that we support new moms. Jane's PhD work focused on doing just that, supporting Toronto-based moms from marginalized populations to breastfeed. She recently published a qualitative study in the Journal of Maternal and Child Nutrition assessing a new postnatal lactation support program run through the Parkdale Queen West Community Health Center and their on-site CPNP, or Canadian Prenatal Nutrition Program. We asked her to walk us through some of her key findings. The CPNP is a federally funded program. So through the Public Health Agency of Canada, they provide funds for for community agencies to develop or expand maternal infant health interventions and programming specifically for vulnerable women or women who are living in uh, challenging life circumstances. So as we talked about, this might mean women who are low income, have low education, uh, social isolation, uh, single parents, etc., And so the actual goal of the CPNP is to improve um, healthy birth weights, so improve birth outcomes, but also to promote and support breastfeeding. And so there's a really great prenatal breastfeeding education component built into the CPNP. And so we want to build on this breastfeeding promotion and 
strong breastfeeding education component that they have to integrate postnatal lactation support so that there's support available to women once they deliver their baby and when they might encounter challenges. And so with this paper, with our community partners at Parkdale Queen West Community Health Center, they had existing funding, additional charitable funding to create a lactation support program for their CPNP participants. So we saw this as an opportunity to evaluate this existing model to see what's working well and what women think of, of their experience with this program to better inform kind of our next steps of how we could bring this model of postnatal lactation support to other CPNP sites. And so with this study, it was, a, it was a qualitative study. So we spoke with almost 50 moms who attended this CPNP site and had access to the postnatal lactation support. And this postnatal lactation support includes in-home visits with a lactation consultant. So a lactation consultant is an expert in lactation and lactation management. So they're the experts. And typically lactation consultant services or private lactation consultant services are available, but it's, it's not covered by OHIP. So it can be pretty expensive support to, to access, um, sometimes up to $150 an hour. So it's not typically a service that uh, vulnerable moms would even know about or be able to afford. And so this postnatal lactation support provides in-home lactation consultant services and double electric breast pumps to moms if they need it. And we wanted to hear about their experiences with breastfeeding and their experiences with the program, the lactation support program. And what we found and what they told us was that most women experienced a lot of breastfeeding challenges that they weren't expecting. And so through discussions with these women, interviews and focus groups, we found that there were actually three distinct types of challenges. So physical challenges, which might've included things such as low milk supply or difficulty with breastfeeding technique like latching and positioning. Practical challenges included just kind of things that made it difficult to breastfeed with a new baby like not having enough money to access uh, lactation support or just time constraints and time commitments, caring for other children and recovering from childbirth. And then emotional challenges or, or challenges with breastfeeding self-efficacy, which is uh, a mother's confidence in her ability to breastfeed. So most women said they knew that they wanted to breastfeed and they started breastfeeding, but they just weren't prepared for these challenges. And what they also told us was that the lactation support was really highly valued by these women and helped to address kind of each of those elements of, of breastfeeding difficulties. And there were, there were kind of these three components that were especially essential according to the women that we spoke to. And that was the skilled support. So the skilled provider who was the lactation consultant, who provided care in the home and in a non-judgmental and, and caring manner. So those were kind of the key findings. Jane emphasized that the biggest impact of the program came from the ability of the moms to have lactation consultants come directly to their home free of charge on a flexible schedule that worked for them. 
removing the necessity for them to travel, especially in the first few days after birth when they're still recovering from birth or possibly even caring for other children. She mentions that some of the moms who participated in the study were newcomers to Canada. And while many would have had support from family and friends had they been in their home countries, they often lacked that same support here in Canada, making navigating the postpartum period extra difficult. She says that we need to be mindful to create programs that are accessible to and can work for all mothers. Finally, like Loren, who emphasized how MSF strives to integrate into existing frameworks to gain community acceptance, Jane also explains how the effectiveness of the postnatal lactation support program was increased by integrating it into existing CPMP sites that had gained community acceptance already. Like another reason that we want to, you know, try and integrate postnatal lactation support into CPNP sites is because, you know, there's already this network of an established program that has a really strong social support component. And from our experiences there, just talking to women, they they have a relationship with the with the providers there who are who are providing the CPNP services, right? So they have a comfort level already with this program. And then by offering postnatal lactation services, it's not just someone random calling you to see how breastfeeding is going. It's coming from, you know, a trusted person that you've built a relationship with prenatally, not necessarily the lactation consultants themselves, but just the providers at the CPNP, the team members who are dealing with these women prenatally. So yeah, I think I think trust and building that relationship is is a really key component, which is why we want to try and integrate these postnatal lactation services into an existing program where that social support and trust already exists. Jane says that the next step is to quantitatively show that the program increases breastfeeding in the first six months postpartum, and then to scale up the program across other CPMP sites in Toronto and eventually across Canada, with the goal of being able to provide the evidence to encourage increased funding allocation to support such programs. Since CPNP is a national program, we need data on whether it's effective at improving breastfeeding rates in different areas and different places across the country. So we're currently exploring opportunities to do this on the east coast of Canada, so in the Atlantic provinces. And basically, we will do similar work at building relationships with community partners, which is really key in all of this work. And our community partners are wonderful because they're the ones who are actually providing these programs and services to women, right? So our relationship and having them involved in the research and understanding what they need as well um, has just been so key. So we want to develop these relationships with potential community partners and CPNP sites out east to figure out how this model could be adapted to, to integrate into their sites and hopefully across the whole country eventually. It's programs like these that are aiming to decrease disparities in maternal and infant health care by getting moms the support they need when they need it. We asked one of our new moms what advice she might have for expectant mothers or those who know someone expecting a baby. I think the most important thing is that you're gentle with yourself. If you're the birthing parent or, or a member of a family that's waiting for a baby, Especially now, especially now in the middle of a pandemic, 
be be gentle with yourself. If having a baby, trying to have a baby, it's such a wonderful thing, but it's also hard, and you will be tired, and that's okay. Be gentle with yourself, and find community in a form that works for you. And I guess if there's anyone listening that isn't about to have a baby, but that knows somebody who is, that a great kindness would be to offer to do something specific for them. Can I bring you a meal? Can I, it's harder in a pandemic, but whatever it is, if it's someone in your bubble, can I come over and sweep your floor and make you a cup of tea? Whatever it is that reminds that person that actually you've just had a baby or you're about to and it's normal to need some help. We would like to take this time to give a massive thank you to all our guests, Madeline Springate Coombs, Dr. John Kingdom, Lauren Wadham, and Jane Francis for their insight and expertise, as well as the mothers who shared their own lived experiences. Be sure to check out the resources and links in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about the topics discussed in this episode. Catch us in two weeks on September 9th for the launch of Season 5, where we're kicking off with a roundtable discussion on this year's COVID Decoded YouTube series. This episode would not be possible without Alex, our audio engineer, Stefania, Frank, Kat, and myself, who developed the content for this episode, hosted and conducted interviews. I was the executive producer. And until next season, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.